The Daily Rios, episode 368. Time for another listener feedback episode. This is from all the feedback that was received uh, in the month of October. And let's just jump right in. We're going to start with some feedback from episode 362, which was the Timeline Tuesday episode for October. This is from Chris Beckett. He says, I just wanted to confirm that Harbinger was the first original concept in the Valiant universe of the 1990s. I was on board from day one with Magnus and then Solar, and I continued with almost all of their titles up through the Unity event. Shortly thereafter, Jim Shooter was dismissed from the company, and at that point, the books lost some of their luster. I cannot say whether the Shooter ouster had anything to do with it. I never believed so. But I do remember the books feeling and reading very differently to me once Shooter was gone. Almost like that shift that occurred with Season 5 of The West Wing after Aaron Sorkin had left. Thanks for that confirmation, Chris. He goes on to say, Another thing that has always stayed with me from that company at that time was an editorial from Shooter, most likely leading up to Harbinger. He was touting David Laffham, who did some of his earliest art on Harbinger and Shadow Man and other Valiant titles, as a great new find. He even compared him to Frank Miller, and to an editorial he wrote about Frank, about this great new kid coming up through the Marvel ranks. Shooter predicted that Laffham would be as big as Miller. Well, that didn't happen, but I always found it interesting that they that just a few years after this, both Laffham and Miller would be creating their own black-and-white crime comics, and both of them would be amazing. Think I might have to dig out my Valiant books and do a proper reread at some point. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, um, that's one of the things I like about doing the Timeline Tuesday episodes, is that hopefully it might jog memories in the listeners uh, about comics that they maybe haven't read for a long time, or maybe a certain event that happened 10 years ago, 25 years ago, and uh, you know you sort of forget that time passes. But yet in comics, because everything is so cyclical, it's interesting to see things, especially when we dig back 50 years ago. 75 years, that kind of makes sense. Everybody's going to celebrate 75. Um, But not everybody celebrates a 50th anniversary of a lot of these characters or creators or titles. So when something does come up that has a 50th anniversary and there's a tie to something that's going on currently, I just like that. I love that kind of connection. And if it makes a listener dig out a book they haven't read in a long time, then, you know, I did my job. That's what I like about doing those timeline episodes. All right, next up, we have from Eric from the Long Box Review Podcast. This is about episode 365, uh, the Wonder Woman Day episode, the 75th anniversary special that I released. And he says, so the Brady Bunch are part of the DCU? And what he's referring to is, Wonder Woman's first broadcast appearance ever in cartoons, in TV, in anything other than uh, comics, not even in radio or in serials, uh, the old movie serials. Her first broadcast appearance was in 1972 in an episode with the Brady Brady Bunch uh, with their cartoon show called The Brady Kids. 
So, yes, apparently she, the Brady Bunch does belong to the DCU. And what does it say about the Brady Kids cartoon that DC Comics felt it was the perfect show to drop Wonder Woman in for her first broadcast appearance? I don't, I don't know. Was it that popular? Uh, were they just trying to get their character characters out there and they thought that it would be a perfect fit? And if the Brady kids are in the DCU, then doesn't that mean that Scooby-Doo and his gang are in the DCU as well? Kind of makes sense, right? Because they met Batman and Robin just a few months prior to the Brady kids episode with Wonder Woman. And now that was CBS and the Brady kids were ABC. Uh, I didn't dig deep enough into production companies or who had what rights to make sense of it all. But I think it's interesting that they chose Brady Kids to release Wonder Woman. And then, you know, they obviously had some other cartoons going on. And I think I read somewhere that Filmation was looking to do a Wonder Woman cartoon. So all of it's just an interesting little, you know, factoid kind of thing. Speaking of Scooby-Doo, back in September, I totally missed this. And I have to imagine that Adam and I, we really should cover this over on the Crisis Tapes. So back in September, Scooby-Doo Team-Up from DC Comics was released. Scooby-Doo Team-Up number 18, which was the printed version of Scooby-Doo Team-Up, which is being done digitally. I think it was issues number like 35 or 36 of the digital release. So it was a story called The Doggone Crisis, and it features Scooby and his gang, along with Crypto, Ace the Bat Hound, Wonder Dog from the Super Friends cartoon, and also Nort the Green Lantern, and not to mention the Space Canine Patrol Agency, which I had never heard of uh, until I looked it up, and they are from Superboy 131 from 1966, speaking of 50th anniversaries. Basically, they were uh, a collection of dogs that had code names that were alliterative, and um, one of the descriptions that I read said that they all had one power, just like the Legion of Superheroes, so each dog had their own unique power. Uh, And there are also in this issue plenty of other dog-related DC characters in cameo appearances. Now, there is no Dynamut, and there is no Yuck from the Mighty Man cartoon, but The cover alone sold me, and I don't know why I didn't pick it up, but I'm going to have to look for it. Um, It's a a crisis story. It's a two-part crisis story. Uh, I believe believe both parts are in the print issue. Um, I mean, right down to that they do an homage to the classic uh, Justice League, Justice Society team-up where the Justice League are performing a seance and in the clouds above the mystic ball or whatever it is that they're using, the Justice Society are sort of floating there. They do an homage, a replica to that cover. So I have to get this. I have to get this. So just wrapping this up all into some cartoon talk here. All right, let's continue on. Both Chris and Eric have two other feedback, not necessarily from episodes. I put up a post It's a cover homage post, speaking of cover homages, for Secret Wars number four, because as I was flipping through the last previews, one of the uh, extraordinary X-Men issues that is going to tie into Inhumans versus X-Men has a cover that's in homage to Secret Wars number four from the 80s. 
So if you remember that cover from number four where the Hulk is holding up a whole bunch of rock and all the Marvels are around him, they're doing that kind of cover for a variant for Extraordinary X-Men where Storm is holding up all the rock and all the X-Men are around her. So Chris replied on uh, that post. So that wasn't a podcast. It just was a post on the Daily Rios. And he says, Secret Wars number four was the issue that introduced me to the Marvel Universe. Sure, I knew Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and Hulk from TV, and I'm certain I was aware of others, but this was my first superhero comic purchase from Marvel, and it led to a deep dive into mid-80s Marvel. My copy is well-worn, but it holds a special place in my collection, and it was definitely that cover image that lured me in. And I did write a reply. I said, that's interesting. I feel that way about a lot of titles from the 80s in that I question why it maybe took me a little bit uh, of time to pick up a title. Uh, and, And why did I pick up, you know, the first issue of Batman that I picked up or the first issue of Flash or Legion of Superheroes or Avengers, uh, X-Men? Why did I pick up the first issue of whatever it was that issue was and not the one before it? You know, did it have something to do with the covers? I think some of them did. Certainly with Flash, the first issue of Flash I, Flash I picked up, um, I can't remember the, the number right now. It might have been like around the three... I want to say 326, 325, 326, shortly after uh, his battle with the reverse Flash. And it's an all-red cover because it's a a pretty, um, you know, close-up view of the Flash's hands in front of his stomach. And they are in handcuffs. And it's bright red. I'm sure it stuck out on the racks. So I, I sort of think, yeah, I can see why that issue probably stood out. I mean, I was collecting comics, at least for a couple months before that. And same thing with, um, well, I mean, Amazing Spider-Man, that's, you know, uh, sort of a no-brainer. The first issue I ever picked up with Amazing Spider-Man was Amazing Spider-Man 252 with the black costume. I mean, come on, how could I avoid that? Why did I pick up Uncanny X-Men with issue uh, 180 and not the issue before it? You know, I can remember seeing earlier issues of Legion of Superheroes, but I didn't pick that one up until Legion of Superheroes 304, I think it is. So, I, you know, that's kind of interesting, that this idea that he said it took this cover and this title to get him into Marvel. And um, I feel that way about a lot of titles. You know, there are some covers that just, you know, stood out to me. And I said, yes, I have to get that, um, even if I wasn't collecting it prior to that. So... Uh, fun little, you know, concept there. So thanks for your comments, Chris, as always. And Chris, you left a lot of comments on the website on some other episodes, and I did go in and personally responded on the website um, to some of those. And then Eric has a couple of questions. He says, how do you decide what Kickstarters to spotlight? And, you know, I, I tend to pick ones that feel like maybe they are underdogs. Um, I try to picks, well, you know, the main reason why I pick certain Kickstarters to play, uh, is because that they're, is because their video actually can play as audio and not just video and audio. There are a lot of videos on Kickstarter that show you comic book images and show you some artwork. 
and they play this music, but nobody is talking. So the ones that actually have somebody talking and introducing themselves and their work obviously work better for a podcast. So that's one of the biggest reasons why I select certain ones over others. And then, like I said, I'll, I'll pick one that feels like an underdog or maybe it's brand new. Um, I feel like the, the Kickstarter projects that reach their, their goal early, uh, you know, they reach their goal within like the first week of their campaign. I don't know. I, that's great. I love it. You know, I'll, I'll support that. I'll throw out a, a tweet or something like that. But I feel like I, I could use my time in spreading the word to the ones that need a little more help, you know, and I feel better about helping out <clears throat> those campaigns that have a long way to go, or they're just nearing the end and giving them a boost will put them over the edge. So that's, that's really, um, and it has to be a project that I'm, you know, slightly interested in. Um, if it's a, if it's a Kickstarter of a second or third volume or third issue of a comic, well, you know, Again, I'm I'm, I'm going to try to look for something new. Um, usually, they are always comic books. I do try to do a search for comics in Philadelphia. You know, for Kickstarters, I haven't found many of those. But um, you know, that's a that's my answer, I guess, to that question. His other question: Where do you get your music? And he's talking about uh, the music that I used on the news episode that I dropped uh, last week or whenever that was. And you know what? It's not exactly something you're supposed to do, but for the news episode, I wanted something comic book related uh, in in my music that had that urgent news program drive to it, right? So I went on YouTube, you're not supposed to do this, blah, blah, blah. But music on YouTube, you know, it's not even supposed to be there anyway. Um, And I started going through soundtracks to try to find something that was related to the Daily Planet. So I went through a lot of soundtracks from different um, Superman-related media. And what I found was, for the news episode that I did, the intro is a song from the Superman uh, animated series. It's it's some kind of like urgent broadcast um, theme. I can't remember what the title was. And then the outro to that episode was the Daily Planet theme from the movie Superman Returns. You know, I do that a lot with my episodes, either music clips or scene clips of something that relates to the episode or something that relates to, you know, sometimes I get a little too clever. I I, I get that. And the clips and the music are obscure, but it pleases me because I know what the connection is and I kind of want to see if maybe the listeners get the connection too. So I, I just run with it. All right. Thanks, Eric, for that. I had a couple comments from Twitter. Charlton Hero, uh, he runs the Superhero Satellite website, Charlton, charltonhero.wordpress.com. And he says, season opener of Supergirl was a winner. I think the CW has given this series newfound wind under the cape. And he asks for my thoughts. And I gave him some on, the, uh, on Twitter. Um, yes, Supergirl, second season of Supergirl has been really strong. I feel it started off strongly, even stronger than Gotham, even stronger than The Flash. Um, Well, now that I say that, I I don't quite remember how Flash Season 2 opened. But I do know by the end of Flash Season 2, I thought it wasn't as strong as Season 1. But Supergirl, I'm really digging. Um, uh, David from Fort Worth, 
even asked my opinions on Tyler uh, Hoechlin uh, as Clark Kent as Superman on on the Supergirl sh- show, and he says uh, I appreciate the brighter portrayal in contrast to the movie universe. I watched Superman the movie when I was 12, so that's probably why this version appeals to me more. And my reply to him was, I feel like it'll take some time for the actor to grow into the role, although he did a better job in the second episode than I thought he did in the first episode. And I'm, I'm talk, talking strictly acting here, right? Um, his Superman felt retro to me. Uh, I felt that his Superman... Uh, portrayal was more informed by the Christopher Reeve movie and it needed to be a little more connected to the tone of the Supergirl show. And I know that sounds like that isn't necessarily conflicting, but it is a bit, you know, the way that um, Christopher Reeve portrays Clark Kent and Superman, um, they are both suits that he puts on. I mean, especially the Clark Kent role. I mean, he's he's clearly, you know, acting foppish and clumsy. And so is Supergirl to a degree. So is um, Melissa, uh, the actress. Um, but I don't know. There, I think there's a different tone. There's a sort of younger vibe to the Supergirl show. There's a little, she's a little more based in, um, um, in the way that TV puts out superhero shows today, you know? Um, So I felt like his Superman was trying to wink and nod back to Christopher Reeve. Now, however, I thought his Clark Kent felt like Dean Cain, felt like, uh, you know, the Clark Kent from Lois and Clark, which is apropos since Dean Cain is on the show. He plays Alex Danvers' dad, but we haven't seen him since the first season because he's disappeared and... Um, there's a mystery with Cadmus wrapped up with Dean Kane with the character, and who knows, he's probably even working for them on some level. Maybe that's why we haven't seen him. Um, I sort of wonder if that's why Jimmy Olsen will become the Guardian. Maybe he's going to invade Kaz- Cadmus as a spy. I don't know. So, having said all that, Tyler playing Superman and playing Clark Kent in the second episode of Supergirl this season, um, I thought he did just better. He was a lot more relaxed. You got to see more of him. He was fun. And he was taking his lead from Supergirl as opposed to being, um, you know, try, not trying to steal the spotlight uh, from, from from him. So, yeah, I liked it. I, I, I really do. I like this Supergirl TV series, and I like this season so far. By the way, just to give a little bit more of a discussion on DC TV... I think the second season of Legends of Tomorrow is also really good, really fun. Just, you know, I don't take this one so seriously, and I don't think it's meant to be taken seriously. Um, It's not as heavy as Arrow. It kind of has the lightness that the first season of Flash has. It certainly has the lightness that Supergirl has. And you have all these characters. It's amazing. You know, yes, sure, some of the costumes on the JSA were... um, they were not so good. They didn't. They didn't look right on TV. All that leather. I don't know. It's starting to get to me. But um, I'm digging it. I'm so liking that show. I thought White Canary was so great in the um, Shogun episode that just was released. Um, and I want to say she's doing a lot of her own stunts, which is amazing. 
And there's something that happens with Ray Palmer and the Atom, which sort of makes me think he's going to go on a certain path. So uh, I'll let you all watch it. So, you know, before I go deeply into that, but yeah, DC TV, man, DC, DC TV is working. Ghost Rider on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Nope, didn't... I, I saw maybe 50, yeah, maybe two minutes of that, and I was like, nope, I'm out. So, um, but DCTV, I'm so in it. It's it's just really firing on all cylinders. And I think they need to get a Friday show on the CW. I don't know what, you know, but, you know, let's do a Vixen show, or let's uh, bring in a whole new concept and and put it on... on uh, on Fridays on the CW. All right, Mark from Westchester says, any chance we get a musical Monday on Rocky Horror? Love to hear your thoughts on this one. And yes, I did respond and say, I will try to do that. I haven't seen it yet, but I definitely will because I love Rocky Horror and I'm curious to see. I know there was some, you know, conflicting opinions on this Rocky Horror production. It wasn't a live show, but um, I want to check it out. Now, if you are someone who likes all those live musicals, Hairspray Live will be on uh, NBC Wednesday, December 7th at 8 o'clock. And just recently announced, there's going to be a Bye Bye Birdie Live in 2017 on NBC. And it will star Jennifer Lopez as Rosie. Um, apparently she came to the producers with the idea because she sings a song from Bye Bye Birdie in her live act. Um, now one of her comments though, made me think that it might wind up, um, uh, they might mix the original show with the movie because she said to the producers, I love the movie Bye Bye Birdie. And the movie Bye Bye Birdie is not so terribly far off from the original stage production, but there are differences. Um, some of the better differences are, um, some of the minor characters are beefed up a little bit. Um, Kim and her boyfriend, um, Hugo, are beefed up, um, more dancing. Um, you know, they actually put in a show, a, a, a song called Bye Bye Birdie, which they didn't, which I think, they, I believe they cut from the original stage production. Um, <clears throat> but there are things about the movie that I do, I mean, the, the stage play that I actually like too. So we'll see. Harvey Firestein will be doing... The teleplay adaptation for uh, the Bye Bye Birdie Live. And he will also be playing Edna Turnblatt in Hairspray Hairspray Live, uh, which is uh, a role that he originated when it was on Broadway the first time. So um, there are going to be some more live musicals. And I can't wait because I love to live tweet them when I can and talk about them on the show. So thank you, Mark, for that comment. And that's it. That's it for this episode and for listener feedback from the month of October. Now, I was going to go in and talk about everything that happened with uh, Chelsea Kane and with um, the cancellation of Mockingbird and everything that happened on Twitter. Um, and I, I was going to do it on this episode, but I want to. I'm going to. I'm going to pull it from this episode and do uh, its own episode um, sometime next week. I just need to get my thoughts wrapped around um, all of that. Um, And, um, yeah, I have some things to say about uh, all of it. So look for that for next week. But for this week, we're done. This has been the Daily Rios episode 368. I really do appreciate everything, emails, Twitter, 
direct messages. I get um, comments on the website, which I love. Um, every time somebody re- replies, I do my best to either put it away so I can do so I can comment on it for a future listener feedback episode, or I will reply as soon as I can. So, um, as Derek Coward says. Feedback is the currency of podcasters, so I feel very rich when I get them. (laughs) And if you have a favorite podcast, send them an email, send them a voicemail. Um, Podcasters love that. So again, thanks for um, all the feedback I got this month. Thanks for listening. And if you want to send in a comment, peter at thedailyrios.com or leave a comment on the website at The Daily Rios. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. And, uh, you know, we'll talk to you next week. Okay.